Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Well, welcome everyone and uh, thanks for coming. I think perhaps one of the trickiest things about an inaugural lecture compared to any other lecture is the, uh, the breadth of background knowledge among the audience. Uh, we've got some people here who have decades of experience in, in fields very closely related to what I'm going to be talking about. And on the other hand, we have uh, little children who are just <laughs> learning their multiplication tables. So I, I'm going to be aiming somewhere to pitch this somewhere in the middle. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I apologize in advance if you find yourself somewhere at the edge of the, the scales. Um, I hope you don't get too bored if you are at the, edge, uh, at the end of the scales. Uh, in case you do, I've created a little diversion for you. So those of you of a certain age will have noticed that uh, there's actually a film title hidden in my inaugural lecture title. In fact, I've secreted a few other film titles <laughs> through the lecture as well. And you can amuse yourself by... Uh, trying to count how many there are. There'll be a Mars bar for the first person to tell me the right number. Okay. Well, what this lecture is actually about is, is uh, not, not uh, uh, Mars bars, but phase uh, uh, transitions. And whether you realize it or not, you're all familiar with phase transitions because you'll have uh, experienced one probably in your kitchen this morning, or rather the water in your kettle will have experienced a phase transition. This is a familiar situation to many of us. We uh, turn on our kettle and the water changes to steam. And that's an example of a liquid vapor phase transition. And so that's very familiar to us. Uh, you may think it's mundane, but actually liquid vapor phase transitions are still the subject of ongoing research. Indeed, um, uh, boiling water is the subject of ongoing research. Astronauts like a cup of tea as well, and people have done this experiment of boiling water on the International Space Station. And what you see is that it's a very different situation to what you have at home. Instead of a whole uh, maelstrom of bubbles which rise up and uh, turn into steam, what you have is uh, a single bubble which forms near the point at which it's produced, and it just stays there. And the reason it stays there, of course, is because in space there's microgravity, practically no gravity at all, and so there's no buoyancy and there's no convection currents, which is what's responsible for all this behavior that you see at home. So this is an example of a phase transition, but phase transitions are ubiquitous in nature. They're all over the place, and here are uh, just some examples. So systems that exhibit phase transitions very common atoms or molecules, bigger particles or bigger molecules like polymers, viruses, liquid crystals, and colloids. And more diverse systems as well can be interpreted in terms of phase transitions, things like traffic flow, financial markets, and magnets. Just to pick out one or two examples from this list, viruses. Many viruses are uh, enclosed by a membrane. And that membrane's there to protect them, and it's quite soft. At least it's quite soft when the virus is in the body. If the virus is to survive when it's outside the body at lower temperature, sitting on a door handle, say, then uh, it can't have a soft membrane. It needs a stiffer membrane. And so the membrane goes through a temperature-driven phase transition, which makes it more rigid, and that helps to uh, allow the virus to jump from host to host. As another example, of course, we all know about um, uh, how we can go from a flowing traffic phase to a jammed phase if we have too many cars on too narrow a road. That's an example of a dynamical phase transition. And magnets can exhibit phase transitions. You may have a magnet stuck to the front of your fridge. It's magnetized, but if you heat it up several hundred degrees, then it loses that magnetization. It goes through a temperature-driven phase transition from a ferromagnetic state to a paramagnetic state. So the questions we like to ask in this context are why do phase changes occur at all? What phases can a given system exhibit? And can we pin down the precise conditions for a phase change? And at least the second two of these can be summed up by phase diagrams. Phase diagrams are maps of phase behavior. So a map tells you where you are uh, in terms of certain coordinates. And it's the same here. We have external variables such as pressure 
and temperature. This is a phase diagram for a, a substance like water. And at high pressure and low temperature, or high temperature and low pressure, we get different phases. So we get a solid here. Uh, that's ice. We get steam down here. And we might get a liquid at intermediate pressure and temperature. And these regions are delineated by what's called phase boundaries. And so when we boil water in a, uh, at home, and what happens is that we're moving along this line at constant pressure, uh, uh, crossing the liquid vapor transition line. Okay, so all those systems which I had on the previous slide, in principle, have some sort of phase diagram or another, and we'd like to be able to predict what those phase diagrams are from knowledge of microscopic interactions. So that's the, the general um, aim of statistical mechanics. And it's hard. And it's hard because if you consider the number of atoms or molecules in a typical substance, then it's astronomical. It's 10 to the 23 or something like that. So we can't hope to know what all atoms and molecules are doing at any one time. The best we can hope to do is to describe them by probability and to uh, uh, describe their typical behavior and relate that to their thermodynamics. And this was... Uh, so. The first person to, to realize this was uh, somebody called uh, Ludwig Boltzmann, who lived back uh, mainly in the, the 19th century. And Boltzmann took the quantity of thermodynamic entropy, which is something we use to torture our second-year undergraduates with. It's, uh, in some sense, it helps explain which state uh, a system would like to be in. Generally speaking, things like to maximize their entropy. And... Um, Boltzmann realized that this entropy could just be uh, expressed in terms of the number of arrangements in which the atoms or molecules can be found. And that's this quantity W here. Okay, well that sounds all a bit abstract, but we can, by a simple example, see how this helps to start to explain the world around us. I did an experiment, I don't usually do experiments, but this is my hand. And the experiment I did was to reach into my pocket and pull out my MP3 player earphones, okay? And when I did that, they looked like this. And this is the experimental measurement of what they look like. They're in a tangled state, all right? And I think this should be familiar to most of you who have iPods and MP3 players, that when you pull these things out of your pocket, they're in a tangled state, and you spend ages untangling them before you can use the darn thing. So why are they more often tangled than untangled? And the reason is simply that there are many more tangled arrangements of these wires than there are untangled arrangements. And if we assume that um, uh, each is uh, equally likely, equally probable, and we choose one at random, then generally speaking, we end up with a tangled arrangement. So Boltzmann was suggesting that in order to understand the world around us, we need to grapple with the concepts of disorder and explain them via probability. And the historical context of that message is quite interesting because um, at the time when Boltzmann was around, in Central Europe, there was a lot of political turmoil. The Habsburg Empire was, was teetering. People had a lot of uncertainty in their lives anyway. They wanted to believe that the order that we see in the world around us is imposed from above by God, not that it emerges from the random jostling of atoms, as Boltzmann was suggesting. And so his message was, was deeply unpopular uh, among scientists and uh, non-scientists alike, something like this, in fact, as reliably reported by, by The Onion. Well... You can go and visit Boltzmann. Many have made the pilgrimage in my field. He, um, he now resides in the Zentralfriedhof in, uh, in uh, Vienna. And um, his main activity is horticultural, as you can see. Um, he's one of the few people who have an equation on their gravestone, which you can see if I enlarge it a little bit. That's the one I showed you before. S equals K log W. All right. Well, rather outrageously, I'm now going to skip 
60 or 70 years of developments in analytical theory and experiments in the subject of phase transitions to get to the start of the story that I actually want to tell this evening, which is the story of uh, uh, Monte Carlo computer simulation. So what is computer simulation? Well, simulation is aping nature with computers. And Boltzmann would have really loved this, I think. So where does it all start? Well, you have to go back to the 1950s uh, and a place, a little place, a little village really, in uh, New Mexico called Los Alamos. And what was happening in Los Alamos in the 1950s was that the US government had established uh, a government research lab. Uh, and they've assembled a lot of scientists there. You've got to remember, this is the 1950s, height of the Cold War, and what they were interested in doing was this. Okay? The US government was quite literally looking for research impact. <laughs> so there were a lot of people working there, uh, experimentalists, theoreticians alike. The theoreticians were interested in working out how materials behave at high pressure and high temperature, in other words, when you use them to make an atomic bomb. And to that end, they built computers. And here's a computer that they built, one of the, uh, uh, the earliest ones that they built. It was built by a chap called Nicholas Metropolis, who ran the computing center at Los Alamos. And he christened it the Mathematical Analyzer, Numerical Integrator, and Computer, or Maniac, apparently in a vain attempt to stop a rash of silly acronyms for computers. So, no luck there. All right. Well, a lot of clever theoreticians were assembled at Los Alamos at the time, and among them were the husband and wife teams of the Tellers and the Rosenblis. And the Tellers and the Rosenblus teamed up with Metropolis, the guy who built the computer, to design a simulation algorithm for the Maniac computer. And this is their paper. It's, uh, the, the algorithm is, is now called the Metropolis algorithm because Metropolis is the first author. It's a remarkable paper, but... Um, one of the things I just want to point out to you is the first sentence, which is particularly remarkable. What it says is, the purpose of this paper is to describe a general method suitable for fast electronic computing machines of calculating the properties of any substance which may be considered as composed of interacting individual molecules. That's actually a remarkable statement because what they're saying is, we've invented a method which in principle solves any problem in equilibrium statistical mechanics. So that as an open, opening gambit is remarkable in my view. All right, so who were these remarkable people? Well, Nick Metropolis, as I said, ran the computing center. Um, he coined the term Monte Carlo, I mean, apparently in a, a reference to a relative's, um, a, a colleague's relative's uh, um, uh, love, for the love for the casinos. The brains behind the idea were Marshall Rosenbluth and Edward Teller, so it should actually be named after them. Their wives, Ariana Rosenbluth and Augusta Teller, they had the challenging and difficult task of actually programming Metropolis's computer. And this was in the days before you had Fortran or C or even compilers. Okay, so this was a very difficult, painstaking task. And because this work wasn't expected at the time to have much impact, they were given the midnight shift on the computer. So they were up there uh, at all times of the night doing this work. History doesn't recall whether the husbands were supporting them with cups or tea, but uh, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Well, this work did have impact. Uh, it had huge impact. And in fact, the Metropolis algorithm is now... Uh, cited as being one of the top 10 most influential algorithms in science and engineering of the 20th century. And I'm quite sure when the history comes to be written for the 21st century, it will be up there too. So having lit the blue touch paper on this algorithm, you'd have expected fireworks. But in fact, everything just fizzled out, at least for a while at least. 
not even the authors pursued the method. So Marshall Rosenbluth wandered off into plasma physics and made himself a very uh, successful career there. Nick Metropolis just carried on running the computing center. Not surprisingly, with these debonair looks, he got a sideline in the movies. So he appeared in Woody Allen's Husbands and Wives, would you believe? Edward Teller, well, Edward Teller was more interested in making bombs. He's the father of the H-bomb. Um, he uh, played a controversial role in the McCarthy witch hunts. Um, and uh, he's reputed to be the inspiration for Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Okay. Well, what does the Metropolis algorithm do? Well, essentially, it turns an impossibly hard problem into a difficult but doable one. If we follow Boltzmann's prescription, then what Boltzmann tells us is that in order to calculate any observable, any quantity of interest, then we have to do that as an average over all possible arrangements of the particles in our systems. Now, even with a modern-day computer, you can't go to more than a few particles before you run out of computing power to calculate all possible arrangements of them. What the Metropolis algorithm says is actually most of those arrangements are not important for the quantity you're trying to calculate. So let's have an algorithm that homes in instead on the important ones. And that's what this algorithm does. It just homes in on the configurations, the arrangements of particles, which make significant contributions to the average of the quantity that we're trying to measure. So in practice, how does this work? Well, we create a virtual box in our computer, and we populate it with virtual particles, and then we take computer-generated random numbers, and we use those to propose new positions for our particles in the box. And then the clever bit is that having proposed a new position, you decide whether to accept or reject it. And that's this business of homing in on the important ones. We throw away the ones which aren't important. We keep the ones which are. And then when we've generated uh, enough new configurations, we, we can analyze them and uh, start averaging over the quantity uh, to get the quantity that we're interested in. So that's an example of a proposed move, and it's one that's been accepted because it leads to a low-energy new configuration. This is an example of a move that gets rejected because if the particle had stayed overlapping with this, there'd been a high-energy state that wouldn't have had a high statistical weight, and so we're not interested in it. All right. Well, I said that interest, there was very little interest initially in the Metropolis algorithm. So it fell to others to pick up uh, the mantle of Monte Carlo si simulation and run with it. And that person was Bill Wood. Okay? So we honor him every time we use a, uh, an internet browser. Um, Bill Wood set himself the problem of solving a long-standing theoretical problem in the 1950s, and that problem was one of hard spheres. Well, what are hard spheres? Well, hard spheres are just like golf balls. Okay, I found these out on the, uh, on the golf course out there. They're just lying around. You can go and pick them up. Uh, hard spheres don't interact with one another unless they touch, and then there's more or less an infinite repulsion. So there's no energy in this problem. It's just entropy. There's just the different arrangements, the different allowed arrangements that these particles can be found in. And in the 1950s, there was a big theoretical debate because it's known that most substances, if you make them dense enough, then they crystallize. So the question was, do hard spheres crystallize if I stick them in a box and forget about gravity, say? Um, and it's not obvious because if you think about what Boltzmann was telling us, Boltzmann was telling us that uh, a system likes to maximize its entropy. He also told us that entropy is associated with disorder. So 
if entropy is associated with disorder and we want maximum entropy, you'd think that hard spheres should always want to remain in a disordered fluid phase and never arrange themselves in a nice ordered crystalline phase because that would surely have uh, lower entropy, wouldn't you think? And if you did think that, you'd have been very good company in the 1950s, including a Nobel laureate or two. But um, Wood decided to do the simulation, and here's my reenactment of what Wood's simulation did. So he took 32 hard spheres, turned off gravity, you can do that in a computer, and he just um, stuck them in this box, started them off in a fluid phase, a high density, and set it running. And I'm going to show you a reenactment of what happens. What you'll see is, because I've got periodic boundary conditions here, that some of the particles near the edge will jump backwards and forwards. Don't bother about that. Just focus in on what's happening at the center. So let's set it going and see what happens. So it's initially fluid-like, but what you can start to see after a while is sort of planes of atoms, at least to the trained eye, you see planes of atoms appearing. Uh, and you see sort of fourfold symmetry around here. More planes as I rotate it, like that. And now I'm looking down there like that. So there's, you know, there's a regular array there. I hope I've convinced you that they've actually frozen. So why have they frozen? Is there more entropy here? Well, there is, in fact. Although this is an ordered arrangement, and you would think that that corresponds to uh, a, a lower entropy, there's more entropy than meets the eye. It's not at the length scale, the lattice that we have here. It's actually at the microscopic length scale. So to do with the fact that these particles, because they're sitting on a nice, ordered, regular lattice, actually have a lot more wiggle room than they would do if they were sort of jammed in, hemmed in by their neighbors in a fluid. And that was probably the first example of simulation actually uh, discovering anything. All right. Well, the arrangement they form is the face center cubic lattice, familiar from um, Greengrocer's displays of oranges. Now, of course, in a real system, you, don't, you have more than 32 particles. Okay? You generally have of order 10 to the 23. So wood was approximating 10 to the 23 by 32. And that sounds like a bad idea, and you'd be right, because it leads to artifacts in your simulation results known as finite size effects. And these are very important, and people in my business spend a lot of time trying to understand finite size effects. The point wasn't lost on wood either. He wrote, some further investigations for both 32 molecules and larger systems will be made on the present calculators but a satisfactory determination of the detailed behavior in the parent transition region will require higher speed equipment. He was saying we needed faster computers. And he was certainly right about that, but as well as faster computers, we also need better algorithms. And some time ago, I worked on an algorithm for solving this freezing problem, and uh, I'd like to tell you about it. It's called Wormhole Monte Carlo. And it was inspired, at least retrospectively, by <laughs> the concept of a wormhole, which you may have come across if you're familiar with uh, general relativity, or you may come across it if you're familiar with Star Trek. Both are equally good. <laughs> a wormhole is basically a shortcut in space. If you can find the ends of a wormhole, you magically get transported to another part of the universe without actually having gone through anything in between. All right? So, as far as we know, no, no one has ever yet discovered a, uh, a wormhole, but there's uh, <coughs> compelling photographic evidence that our feline brethren may have come across one, <laughs> at least a short-range one. All right, so how can we incorporate this idea of a wormhole into a Monte Carlo simulation? I've got two blobs here, and those blobs represent the set of all particle arrangements or configurations which are manifestly liquid-like. Over here, I've got another blob which is supposed to represent the set of all particle arrangements which are manifestly crystalline. 
I've got a sort of island here and an island here, and I'm going to do a wormhole move in which I jump from some of the special configurations here to some of the configurations there. Okay? So how does this work in practice? Put a little bit of flesh on those bones. Well, I have two virtual boxes in my computer. <coughs> and in one, I define a reference set of, uh, a reference configuration, which is these, uh, uh, where these, part where these uh, points are, and these are in a fluid-like arrangement. In the other box, I have my reference configuration, these dots, is in a crystalline arrangement. And then what I do is I populate one of the boxes with... Um, so then what I do is I form a one-to-one -one mapping between a reference site in this box and a reference site in the, in the other box like that. And I do that for all the reference sites. I then populate this box with particles. And I associate each particle with a reference site. In other words, I define a displacement vector which connects this particle to the reference site. And when these displacement vectors are sufficiently small, which corresponds to finding the end of the wormhole, I can do this. I can reassociate the particles with the reference sites in the other phase, keeping the displacement vector constant. And so that allows me to jump from the fluid to the crystalline solid. It's completely reversible, and that's how I can uh, efficiently go from one phase to the other in a Monte Carlo simulation. Well, you may look at that and say, that's impossible. Nature doesn't do that, and you'd be right. But we can take encouragement from the words of the great Douglas Adams, who wrote that the impossible often has a kind of integrity to it which the merely improbable lacks. And that's the marvelous thing about Monte Carlo simulation. You're not constrained to use realistic dynamics in getting from one configuration to the other. You can leap and bound through the space of all possible arrangements as you like, or as long as you satisfy one or two basic rules which are designed to stop Boltzmann turning in his grave. We should play havoc with the pansies. So, using this method, we were able to go from 32 particles to several thousand. You may not think that that sounds like a great improvement after 50 years, and you'd have a point, but at least it means that we've got a reasonable range of particle numbers that we can study. And we can use our knowledge of finite size effects to extrapolate from what we can do to the regime of n equals 10 to the 23, which we can't do in a simulation. So here's an example of that. This is the coexistence pressure for hard spheres, as measured uh, by myself and uh, Alistair Bruce using this wormhole uh, Monte Carlo move. And we measured it for several system sizes, up to about 1,000. If you plot this against 1 over n, then you get a nice straight line which you can extrapolate to 0. In other words, n is infinity. All right. So that's what hard spheres do, and we can now quantify that quite well. You may say, well, you know, what's hard spheres got to do with the real world? And you'd also have a point. But you can make hard spheres. You can make hard spheres in the lab. This is some beautiful experiments by Peter Pusey and um, Van Megen. Uh, Peter Pusey's in Edinburgh. And what they did was they, they, they made some perspex spheres. Now, perspex spheres behave like hard spheres. They're very small. They're in the micron length scale range. And what they're doing as you go along here, looking at these different samples, is they're making the density of these perspex spheres higher and higher. And very soon you get into a, reg a regime where you start to form crystals. Okay? So this is a real experiment on uh, a real system which is behaving like uh, hard spheres. And indeed it shows this hard sphere freezing transition. All these dots and this iridescent behavior comes from the fact that the crystals that are formed have a, a lattice spacing which is comparable with the wavelength of light, and so they scatter light strongly. This experiment has also recently been repeated in space on the space station, and you find that actually things crystallize a lot better in the absence of gravity, so we were right not to put it into our simulations. All right. Well, it was uh, very nice to be asked to present the wormhole method at the 50th anniversary 
meeting of the Metropolis algorithm, which was held in Los Alamos, where it all started um, a few years ago, back in uh, 2003. And very nice to, to share the bill with, with Bill, with Bill Wood, and uh, with Marshall Rosenbluth, who uh, was one of the originators of the Metropolis algorithm shortly before <laughs> he died. New Mexico, uh, Los Alamos is in New Mexico, which is largely desert, of course, so this was a very hot conference, and by the end we were completely parched, and several of us went off to the pub to get a nice ice-cold beer. And there we are. I seem to be just off shot here. But uh, there you go. Okay, well, what else can you do with Monte Carlo? Well, let's go back to phase diagrams. Here's a, uh, a fluid phase diagram, something like water, as I described before. So we've got solid liquid vapor uh, as we vary the pressure and the temperature. Um, notice that this liquid vapor transition line ends at some point, and that point is called a critical point. We can write down, draw phase diagrams for other materials as well. Here's one for a simple magnet. At low temperatures, magnets have regions of uh, domains of material which are positively magnetized, other domains of material which are negatively magnetized. But if you heat them up, then you lose that domain structure. At a certain temperature called the Curie temperature, which is also a critical point, as I'll explain in a minute, you lose that distinction and you go to a paramagnetic state where everything is, is uh, uh, um, uh, disordered. Okay, so we've got a critical point here, something called a critical point here. They share the same name. Turns out they share something a lot deeper than just the same name. I'm going to do, uh, show you a video of an experiment, an experiment on carbon dioxide, where we follow this path shown here. So we're going to start off at temperature above the critical temperature, cool down, passing through the critical point as we do so, ending up in the two-phase regime where we've got liquid, liquid and vapor. And let's just see what happens. So the action starts at the bottom. And you might see a sort of cloudiness or a mistiness here. That's to do with density fluctuations. When the density fluctuates strongly, it scatters light. And that's why this is a, a brighter region down here. The temperature is slowly falling towards the critical point. And look what happens as we get closer and closer. There's a complete maelstrom of density fluctuations which extend throughout the whole system. Thereafter, we get a meniscus between a liquid and a vapor because we've gone into that part of the coexistence region. But clearly something very interesting and exciting was happening at the critical point. Now, you can't make similar videos of what happens in a, a critical magnet, but you can do simulations. And here's, my, uh, sim here's a simple model of a magnet uh, what we've got is just a lattice, and on each lattice site we can have uh, a two-state variable, a black or a white. Black likes to be, energetically speaking, likes to be surrounded by black. White, energetically speaking, likes to be surrounded by white. Um, entropy likes to mix them all up, and when you're at the critical point, you're right at the knife edge between energy winning and entropy winning, so there's a, a competition going on. In a Monte Carlo simulation, what you do is you propose to change a black to a white, and you accept or reject that in a similar way to what I described before. So let's generate configurations of such a simple magnet at its critical point. And here's four configurations of such a critical point magnet. You see this very interesting looking structure. We've got large areas of black, large areas of white, but they're not homogeneous within a black there's, area, there's that small islands of white, and vice versa. So these are four snapshots taken from a simulation at criticality. But in fact, they're not four. They're actually... just one. What were you actually looking at there is different length scales of the same overall picture. But hopefully what you also saw was that they were hard to distinguish. Clearly there were differences, but in a statistical sense, the thing, the pictures that I showed, the original four pictures, looked the same, although they were actually taken on different length scales of the underlying 
problem. And that's the property of scale invariance or fractal-like behavior. So you may have come across that. People talk about coastlines as being fractal. It comes up a lot in biology. And you can get quantitative about this scale invariance by plotting histograms. Basically, you plot the histogram of uh, the excess of black over white or white over black for different sub-volumes of the system. And what you find is that they're quantitatively identical. Those curves collapse onto one another, and that proves this scale invariance. There's other interesting things that you can do. On the left, I've got this critical magnet again. On the right, I've got a Monte Carlo simulation of a critical fluid, a system which is at its critical point. And clearly, they look very different. Here I've got black and white uh, squares on a lattice. Here I've got particles moving in a continuum. They don't have to be on a lattice. They can move anywhere. So these look very different, although they're both at their critical points. However, what happens if you zoom out If you zoom out, then what you see is that on large enough length scales where you can no longer see the microscopic detail anymore because you've zoomed out, then things look much more similar. And in fact, in a statistical sense, in other words, if I generated enough of these uh, large-scale configurations, they'd be identical. And again, we can be quantitative about that, so we can plot the excess over white, of white over black or white over, black over white for the magnet. We can do the same for the fluid, and we get curves which collapse nicely onto one another. And this, this is this phenomenon of fluid magnet universality. And it says that there's something very deep and similar about disparate physical systems at their respective critical points. It's been uh, uh, also in experiments, you, you measure things called critical exponents, and they're quantitatively identical for fluids and for magnets. Okay. Well, by now you may have guess my little secret, which is that I just like to mess around with virtual balls in a virtual box. But these days, of course, we have to uh, try to show that we're doing something which might one day at least have some uh, application or use. And luckily for me, there's a class of system out there which, to a good approximation, behave as balls in a box, and that's colloids. Okay, so what are colloids? Well, colloids are most of the things that you're not allowed to put in your uh, hand luggage unless they're in a resealable plastic bag with maximum of 100 millilitres. Things like gels, lotions, paste, foam, certain foodstuffs, liquid cosmetics. What they are basically is small particles in the nanometer to micron length scale which are dispersed in some fluid. Okay, that's what all these systems are, and you'll probably agree that they're quite useful. But one of the nice things about these colloidal systems, which in my view makes them nicer than atoms or molecules, is that you can tune the interactions between them. With atoms and molecules, you're, you're stuck with what nature gives you, but with colloids, you can tune the interactions be between them. You can make them behave differently, and so you have some prospect of perhaps uh, engineering new types of materials with 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 new properties. And there's various ways in which you can try and tune the interactions between colloidal particles. Some people try to graft polymers onto their surfaces. The way we've been pursuing is to add another species of much smaller particles called nanoparticles and see how they affect the, uh, the interactions between the larger particles. So people do this in experiments as well. Here's some experiments from uh, about a decade as well. This group took some colloids, the large particles, which like to form a gel. And a gel is just when the, the colloids stick together. And gels are useful sometimes, but sometimes they're undesirable. What these people did was they added nanoparticles, these are these small particles, which had, a certain, had certain properties. They were attracted to the colloids, but they repelled one another. And when they added them, what they found is that these broke up the gel, and they moved the particles, the, the colloidal particles, apart. So they just effectively changed what the, the, the structure or the phase behavior of this system is. So we'd like to tackle these sorts of issues using simulation. But there's a hard problem. That is one of size asymmetry. Um, here's our colloid in our simulation. Here are our nanoparticles. We'd like to generate lots of 
different configurations of the colloids and the nanoparticles. But if we try to move one of the colloids, as I showed earlier on, what happens? We can't. It's hemmed in by its neighbours. It can't get very far because uh, of all the nanoparticles around it. Another trick that we have for trying to generate uh, new configurations, new arrangements, is to try to insert a colloid in the system. If we do that, there's just no space because of the small particles. So that doesn't work either. So simple-minded algorithms don't work here. So we have to exploit the flexibility of Monte Carlo. And here's an algorithm which was originally proposed by Dresden Krauth and Lewin Lauten, and which we've extended. And here's how it works. This is just a cartoon. We have our large particles. We have our small particles. We choose a random pivot point. We choose a random particle, and we reflect it in that pivot point. And then we look at see what the knock-on effects of this are. Well, there are three knock-on, four knock-on effects. These guys are unhappy because the big guys just landed on top of them. This guy is unhappy because he had some nice attractive energy with the big guy, but the big guys just disappeared. So we, we allow these to reflect in the pivot as well, and they all move over there. So this guy is now happy, these guys are happy, this guy is happy, but the guy who was there before is now unhappy because the interloper has just come and landed on top of him. So we iterate. So he can go over there, and this guy can go over there, and we just keep going until everyone's happy. All right? And then we stop. And when we've done that, we've made a big change. Okay? That was before, that's after. In a single update of the system, we've made a big change. Okay, so what does this look like in a real simulation box? Something like this. We extended that so-called cluster algorithm, so as rather than just moving particles around a single box, it swaps them between two boxes. This is very good if you want to look at phase transitions, like the liquid vapor phase transition that I talked about near the beginning. So here's a snapshot of one of our systems. Um, let's show you the particles which are going to flip between the box. There they are. If I take out the ones which aren't going to flip, you see that a sizable proportion are involved in this move. What do they do? They flip over like that. So backwards, and uh, it's a reversible move, but um, we made, in a single step, a huge change to the arrangements of our system, and that means that our algorithm is very efficient at getting us to statistically independent configurations where we can measure statistically independent uh, values for our observables. So when you apply this to the uh, liquid vapor coexistence problem, you end up with a liquid in one box, you end up with a gas in the other box, you might say that doesn't much like a gas, but we're talking about a gas for the colloids here. So if I get rid of the small particles, you see this is a low-density gas coexisting with a much higher-density liquid. So we can work out the coexistence curve properties of this system, and we can look at how it changes as we add more and more small particles. And here are some of our results, which were uh, published recently. So this is a coexistence curve. So this is the gas densities. This is the coexisting liquid densities for the colloids. If we don't have any small particles in our system, we have this curve. As we add small particles, so this is the volume fraction of the small particles, then what happens is that the region in which we get gas-liquid coexistence gets suppressed to lower temperatures. And in fact, that was a big surprise. On the basis of existing theories, everyone would have told us that it should have gone up in temperature. It went down, and we now understand why that is, and we're in the process of uh, helping to uh, update the uh, phenomenological and theoretical descriptions on, the, on, on that basis. Okay, so I also mentioned this problem of uh, inserting colloids. We have a method for doing that now. What it does is it breaks down the hard problem of inserting a large particle in a sea of small particles into uh, a, a series of much smaller problems. Instead of inserting the large particle in a single go, it's done in steps of ghostiness. So when we put in the, the particle in the first step, it's completely ghosty. It doesn't interact with the small particles at all. And then we turn off its ghostiness and gradually change it into a real particle. And this is what's happening here. It's going through its stages of ghostiness. 
as indicated by here. And when it gets from here to here, it's turned into a real particle, and we start in inserting the next one. But of course, the things don't just go up and down, uh, they go down as well. And so there's a whole sort of uh, fluctuation or random walk up this scale of ghostiness in which we have integral numbers of large particles. So that's another example of the sort of uh, unphysical tricks that you can do in Monte Carlo which give you physical data at the end of the day. Well, the last thing I want to touch on is designer colloids because there's a lot of clever chemists out there who can make really interesting looking particles. And uh, here are some examples. They can make ellipsoids, they can make cuboids, they can make stars, they can make rods, they can make things that look like ice cream cones. They can make bowls, they can make dimers, little flowers, all sorts of things. And this is amazing because these, these, these particles, because they're not spherically symmetric like a hard sphere, can do interesting things. They can start to assemble into more interesting, larger scale structures. And one, of, one system that we focused on um, recently is a system that was made for the first time last year experimentally by a group in New York and they're called lock and key colloids. So lock and key colloids are colloids which start off as spheres and then through uh, a, a, a chemical and, and, and thermal process you buckle the surface okay, to produce an indentation. And you end up with something which schematically looks like that. That's the indentation. We call this a lock particle because if we take some smaller spheres in principle, these, and we call those keys, they can fit inside the lock. They can sit inside that indentation. Well, why should they want to do that? Well, they will want to do that if you add in lots of nanoparticles, because what those nanoparticles do is essentially they push the keys into the locks. So this is a very new system, and it's quite exciting because it's showing the, uh, the fundamentals of self-assembly, particles coming together to make more interesting large-scale structures. And we started simulating this, and because of all these small particles around, we need these cluster algorithms, which I've just been describing them. So what you do is you take a whole set of locks, you take a whole set of keys, you throw them in a simulation box with some nanoparticles, you press return to start the program running, you go away, you come back in the morning, you look at what's happened, and it looks like that. And, of course, you can't see anything because all the small particles are in the way. So you, uh, you pull them all out and you see this. And, indeed, that you started to see self-assembly, that there's keys sitting in locks here. And, indeed, sometimes you get a key actually has sat in two locks. Okay, so stand back. You're getting trimers as well as dimers. So that's quite nice. And you can start to play games which go beyond what the experimentalists can currently do, although they're trying hard to catch up, you can create double locks. So that's a, a lock particle which has an indentation at both ends and see what that does. And you come away in the morning, uh, come back in the morning, of course you can't see anything, so you take out the small particles, and you get caterpillars forming. Or as you write in grant proposals, nanowires. <laughs> okay? So, very interesting self-assembly going on there, and, and that's really, really just the start. So, I promised to tell you something about the future, and, of course, to see into the future, you need the ultimate hard sphere, which is the crystal ball. Um, something, personally, I think is important, I, I very much like to see, is to take some of these methods that we've developed and used in the context of simple models of things like hard spheres and Leonard Jones particles and start to bolt them on to methods which realistically describe what's going on in, in, in specific substances. So what I'm talking about here is marrying Monte Carlo simulation with methods such as the Carparanella method for on-the-fly electronic structure calculation which give us accurate descriptions of uh, the, the, the structure of real systems. So that if, it, say, a geophysicist came to me and said, I'd like to know about the melting curve 
of iron in the centre of the Earth at the pressures and temperatures of the centre of the Earth. Could you calculate it for me? We'd like to be able to do that. And at the moment, we're some way off that, but I think all the ingredients are out there. Computers are getting powerful enough, the algorithms are getting powerful enough, but we've got to bolt them together and uh, uh, try to make that step. The other thing which I think will be big in the future is the following. We've got quite good at saying what happens if we take uh, substance A and we mix it with substance B, what will happen in terms of the structure and the phase behavior of the result. Okay, so we mix this with this and we can use a com computer simulation to say oh, what it looks like, what its structure is, what its phase behavior is. But of course, somebody in commerce and industry would pose the question, okay, I'm interested in a, having a substance which has a certain structure, it has a certain phase behavior, can you tell me what I need to mix together in order to get that? And that's the so-called inverse problem, and it's really challenging. It's much harder than this conventional approach. Uh, and we're, in many cases, a long way away. But I think the Monte Carlo simulation, because it's really good at sampling all the possibilities that are out there, may be a very powerful method for actually tackling this inverse design problem. We've got one or two initial ideas there and uh, we'd, uh, we'd like to apply them in the future. So I hope I've convinced you that for many problems in computational science, it's got to be Monte Carlo or bust. I've certainly had a lot of fun playing with Monte Carlo, and I hope to carry on having fun in the future, certainly looking at some of these interesting problems. So if you come by my office and the door is shut, it's not necessarily that I'm being unfriendly, it might just be that I'm engrossed in a Monte Carlo simulation. <laughs> so um, that's it. I'd like to thank a few people, uh, senior scientists who mentored and supported me, uh, once in the audience, um, collaborators, too numerous to mention. Doug. <laughs> Doug's over there. That's my postdoc. You've seen a lot of fancy animations today, and I wish I could say they were all mine. Uh, most of them were made with 90% help from Doug, and uh, he's done a tremendous job. Today, very sadly, is his last day. He's moving on to Pastures New. He's moving to Utrecht to start a, a new po postdoc, so wish you well, Doug, and I hope you'll come back and visit us and uh, remain in touch. I'd also like to thank my family, of course, for, for many things, and for you, the audience, for your your kind attention. Thank you.